Welcome to this week's episode of our Thirsty Podcast. I am Pastor Michael Zarling. And I am Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer. And we're here going to be studying the scripture readings for the fifth Sunday after the Epiphany. The theme for this Sunday is The Devil's Work Undone. I'm going to read a description on the how the three readings come together from uh, one of the commentaries on the propers. The past writes, that Christ shoulders all the effects of the devil from weariness and weakness, the first reading, to anxiety and stress, the second reading, to disease and ignorance, the gospel. He never wearies and always has strength for us, the first reading. He strengthens us when the roaring lion prowls and anxiety looms, the second reading. Our gospel shows him healing, driving out demons, and spreading his preaching. With his power over demon and disease and his message of repentance, Christ is revealed. Nathan, you want to read the gospel lesson? Yeah, the gospel for this week is from Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. They left the synagogue and went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed, sick with a fever. Without delay, they told Jesus about her. He went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening, when the sun had set, the people kept bringing to him all who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. He healed many people who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. But he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew. Jesus got up early in the morning while it was still dark and went out. He withdrew to a solitary place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He told them, Let's go somewhere else to the neighboring villages so that I can preach there too. In fact, that is why I have come. Then they went throughout the whole region of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So Nathan, do you want to give our listeners uh, some of the background from last week's gospel that is going to lead into the events that take place in this week's gospel? Yeah, so even if we go back a little bit further, Jesus had been preaching in his hometown of Nazareth and had been rejected there and now has moved and kind of will use Capernaum as his base of operations for his Galilean ministry. And so in the scripture readings for last week, Jesus was preaching in the synagogue and the people were amazed because he was preaching as one having authority and not like the teachers of the law that they were used to. And then at that time, too, Jesus had also driven out uh, an evil spirit from a demon-possessed man who had come into the synagogue, and the people were amazed again by that display of authority. And so after they left the synagogue, Mark writes that they go to the home of Simon and Andrew. Uh, So they are brothers. So we talked about this uh, last week that I was going to mention it. This week, uh, I was blessed over a dozen years ago to go to go to Israel. I don't know, Nathan, do you plan on going to Israel anytime soon? I do plan. I would like to go to Israel, but maybe not anytime soon. <laughs> I was supposed to go a couple years ago, and then COVID happened. So, yeah. And now there's other things that are happening, too. Yes. And... When I went over a dozen years ago, I remember going to Capernaum and seeing the ruins of what they believe would have been the synagogue where Jesus would have gone and expelled this demon, and then going to the home of Simon Peter. And what's interesting is 
our tour guide first took us to the home and you walk in, it doesn't seem all that special or that huge. Uh, but when you walk around the building and then go up the hill, then there's a church and then you go into the church and it's a round church and it's on top of the house of Simon Peter, which looking down is a round house and it's very, uh, very interesting that it's round and fairly large. And then by the altar area, they've, they have the opening so that you can look down and then there's glass, plexiglass and so forth. So you can't fall through, but you can see the people down below in the house just kind of milling around. They notice there's people up above in the, in the church and waving down. But that's one of the interesting things when you are able to go to Israel, and hopefully you can go, Nathan, is where there are special events in Jesus' life. Uh, the early Christians, they put a church. It's not even the early Christians. Some of these are later Christians. Some of these are newer churches. But to commemorate the feeding of the 5,000 or the Beatitudes or the cave where they might have had believed that the shepherds came from or where they believe that uh, Mary met with uh, or the announcement of the birth of Jesus and then the actual birth of Jesus, those kind of places. It's, we don't know exactly where they were, but it's pretty interesting to see the churches that are built to commemorate those places. From what I heard, isn't the Church of the Holy Sepulchre like an absolute mess because there's like chapels inside of chapels and then that's the one too that it's one-third, one-third, one-third Catholic, Greek Orthodox, yeah. And Coptic? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I don't know if it's so much a mess because they're, they're separate. I didn't really notice it. Maybe I'm not remembering it correctly, but it is very interesting for us in our Western Christianity where we don't really do the high church, and then you see like the Greek Orthodox and the Catholics where it's very high church and there's a lot of brass and copper and incense and then you know the different colored glasses and so forth, uh, holding candles. So very different than the way we might decorate our churches. But what is interesting with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is that you could put your hand into a hole and you have to not be worried about germs because thousands upon thousands of millions of people have put their hand in that hole where they believe that the cross of Christ had been put into the ground. But then it's just a short walk. You're still in the same building to go to where the tomb of Jesus would be. I just remember one of the pastors um, at Good Shepherds, they had done a Bible study because they had both gone over there and had just taken people kind of through it. And I, I thought it was that church that said they had gone in and then they got lost inside and had a lot of trouble finding their way back out. Oh, yeah. But it's lots and lots of people there. And especially when you're in Jerusalem, because it's not that very large of a city, and people are are packed in there because the streets are very narrow. All right, getting back into the text. Uh, so I was thinking of this as I was studying it, Nathan. Is you had to know that Simon Peter's mother-in-law was very sick, and the reason is because she's not up waiting on them. She's in bed. She's not like a man. <laughs> <clears throat> As I, I talk to my wife about this when I get sick, and, and I'll say to her, you know, if uh, a normal human being had this illness, he'd probably be dead. 
but uh, you know I'm able to survive it. But you know we know that. Come on, from experience, guys can be kind of wimpy when they get sick, and yet the moms, the wives, they just uh, push through the illness. And 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 that's that's what strikes me here is here's a mom, you know, mother-in-law, and she she can't push through. She is sick in bed with a fever. And then Jesus just walks up to her, touches her, and then notice what she does. Yeah, she immediately gets up and begins to serve them. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's the thing is she has a servant heart, and she's ready to, to serve them. And it, this is a, a large group. You know, I don't know if it's all of the disciples, and Mark doesn't mention them. So if there's 13 guys, or if it's just the five that he mentions, or that Mark mentions, where it's Jesus and the two sets of brothers. Anything that you want to talk about with that? Uh, not with that specifically, other than, um, I mean, we do know, obviously, Peter was married, which is something we, we tend to point out when we talk about um, the Catholic Church and their insistence on Peter being the first pope and then him being celibate. Well, if he, he had a wife and a mother-in-law, that kind, of, that kind of shoots a hole in that whole theory there. But with that emphasis of that Peter is married, we don't know if any of the other apostles were married. And then to see when Jesus calls them to the full-time ministry, for some of them, they can go back and do some things, like go back and fish. Matthew can't go back and be a tax collector and just pick that up every now and then. Simon really probably shouldn't go back to being a zealot. <laughs> you beat me. I was going to say that <laughs> one too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, whatever Judas was doing. You know, maybe they can pick it up, maybe they couldn't. But understanding that you know, they can't take their wives and their kids with them to do much of this work. You know, they're leaving their, their homes, their families, their employment for weeks, months on end, and then hopefully coming back. Uh, and then, I know we don't really think about this too much, is what would they have, what was their life going to be like as apostles? Not just the disciples for those three years, but after Jesus had ascended into heaven and sent them out to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know, are they taking their families with them? I'm, I'm assuming yes, because they're going a very long ways away to India, to Rome, Galatia, and so forth. Uh, so there, you know, there is something about you know, being a called worker and then understanding, yeah, we're going to have to leave our families at times. Uh, and then that evening, so now the Passover is over. And so now it's evening. It's the next day when the sun had set, the people kept bringing to Jesus all who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And when I've preached on this in the past, I've, I talk about how it's kind of like an episode of M.A.S.H., you know, did you used to watch MASH? I did, a very long time ago. Okay. Uh, see, I grew up watching MASH because back when I was a child, we still had those heavy console TVs, and you, you couldn't move around and so forth. Didn't have TV remotes, and even the plastic knob on the TV had broken. So it wasn't so much that you had just had to get up and physically turn the channel, but since the knob was broken, we had a vice grip 
that was on on a little knob that was there or should have been there. And then that was just too much work. So we just watched Channel 12 out of Milwaukee, ABC, and they had MASH on. So I grew up on MASH. But the point is, if you watch MASH and you had all of these wounded soldiers brought to the 4077, that's the way I picture this. Just people bringing their blind, their deaf, their lame, their demon-possessed. Yeah, we didn't have the, we had a push button television. Whoa. And, but the thing is, so Watoma, um, I remember this, we were living there when the FCC made the change from analog to digital signals, and they had the the range maps for the local TV stations, and if you draw a Venn diagram from Appleton, Wausau, and the Madison markets, the hole where no none of those reach is where Watoma is. <laughs> And so we had one of the antennas with the rotor because, you know, it would it would be okay, we wanna watch we wanna watch ABC, so it's pointed to Mattis or to Wausau and hopefully get that. And I like trying to explain to my children what watching football games in the snow, not the yeah. meteorological kind, but the television kind, and they have no idea what that is. Yeah. I know a little bit not so much the snow, but uh, I have an antenna in the house on the wall for picking up uh, TV stations. And the only time I'll do that is to watch any kind of football. And, you know, there's certain stations, they just don't want to come in. Sometimes I have to stand there, just like the old days. Yep. You know, standing yeah, there, you stand put, there. Yep. put the tin foil on yep. the antenna. And then, uh, well, this reminds me, this, we had to do this actually on 9-11. We're way off topic, but that's okay. Uh, 9-11 happened, we had pastor's conference in September in Radcliffe, Kentucky, near Fort Knox, and it was the second day of our conference, and my wife Shelly called, and that was before cell phones, I answered the, the landline at church, and she said, turn the TV on. Well, we happened to have a big TV on the, on the cart, because that's what churches had back then to show the Wells Connection videos, and... Uh, I turn it on and to see now we we watched the second plane go in to in the buildings and called all the other pastors into it was our nursery and you know that's what one of the pastors had to do he had to hold the antenna in the back put his arm out so the rest of us you know 20 some pastors could watch that uh, yeah, those. Yeah, our young people have no, no concept. Yeah, no concept. No concept. Uh, but the, a mash unit around around the home of Peter and Andrew. Uh, and notice, just like in the previous lesson, Jesus did not allow the demons to speak because they knew Jesus. Uh, so you want to talk about that again? Just kind of refresh our listeners' memories on why that is. So. Obviously, the demons know who Jesus is, and the demon in last week's lesson calls Jesus the Holy One of God, um, and and we we speculate that the reason Jesus didn't want the demons to speak is even though they were speaking the truth about him, he didn't want testimony about him coming from the mouth of demons. We know later on in his ministry, he'll be accused of being in league with the demons, um, and so I think the point is here that he, he doesn't want witness about him coming from the mouths of demon. 
And the reason Satan's doing that is to undermine the message of Christ, to do that, that very thing, that these demons that would lie and would say terrible things are then confessed, even though they're saying something true, it damages the reputation of Jesus. And then after a full day of preaching and then healing, Jesus gets up early the next morning and then he goes off to a solitary place and he prays there. So, uh, you know, he's taking his Sabbath rest because he didn't get it on the Sabbath and he's taking a break. So what did you do this week as a break, Nathan? I stayed home on Monday and I took down my outdoor Christmas decorations and I started building my son's bed. But basically, I spent most of the day outside. Yeah, it's it's warm here, yes. like 30, 40 degrees. Yep. Like yesterday was 40 and sunny. Uh, and that's that's the time when we in Wisconsin, oh, it's 40 degrees and sunny? Yeah, I grilled. Yeah, I was going to say, it's shorts and a sweatshirt and grilling weather. And I don't know if that's what Jesus is out there doing, but Simon and the other companions, Mark says, they search him, they find him, and they say, everyone is looking for you. And you can understand that everyone is looking for Jesus because there's more people to be healed. And this is where I focused on this at the end of one of my recent sermons. Well, it would have been three years ago on this text of what do we do? How do we feel when it seems like Jesus is gone? He's left us. He's resting while we're working. Uh, that we feel like he's not listening to us. Uh, so I just wanted to read this paragraph that I had written because I think it applies here because we can oftentimes feel like, like I said, Jesus isn't around. Uh, I wrote, Jesus did not heal everyone in Capernaum because it wasn't necessary to heal everyone. That's not what he came for. That's not how he deals with diseases and demons. The way Jesus deals with demons and diseases is to die and to drop all our diseases and demons down into the black hole of his death. The way he heals us is not to give us band-aids and painkillers, but with his painful death and glorious resurrection. The diseases we endure are merely symptoms of a much greater disease, sin. Jesus did not come to deal with the symptoms by healing every disease or mending every broken bone or repairing every torn ACL. He came to deal with the disease itself, sin. He dealt with it by carrying humanity's sins upon himself to the cross. He buried our sins in his grave. He rose from the grave, leaving our sins in the tomb. The earthly effects of sin still remain, but the much more important eternal effects of sin have been removed. Death and destruction is the way Jesus works true and lasting healing. The miracles just point the way to Jesus. Then we can listen to his preaching. Our great comfort as Christians comes not in the fact that our bodies are healed, but that our souls are saved. Receiving healing for our bodies from Jesus is great. Receiving salvation for our bodies and souls from Jesus in answer is eternally better. Miracles are great. Preaching is always greater. So with that, uh, why then, Nathan, does Jesus leave? Why doesn't he just stay there and keep on healing? I think there's two things that I want to talk about here. The one, and I'll talk a little bit, a little bit in a second. Jesus emphasizes here the need for for rest uh, that he takes advantage of, and I think the other one too is that 
we see this later on in his ministry too, is that people start looking to him for the miracles, not the message. And so already in Capernaum, the people are looking for him to heal. And so he's saying, we need to go somewhere else where I can really focus on preaching. And he says that, in fact, that is why I have come in verse 38. Um, One of the things I like about this is that going away to a solitary place, there is something that we need every once in a while just to get away, to unplug, uh, to be able to take time for ourselves, um, and to take time to spend in prayer as well. It's something uh, my sister-in-law has built a business around um, working with different corporations and advising them on how to get their employees out of the office, away from their electronics, and back out into nature. Um, And there's just something very powerful about being somewhere quiet, somewhere solitary, where you can just kind of unwind, which is something that we don't have a lot. You know, I know so often in my life, what do I do when I relax? I turn on a screen, I watch TV, I'm not resting, I'm not going to a solitary place, I'm doing something. And I think there's something to be said for taking time just to not do anything. Yeah. And with that, I saw a meme this week of a mom. Her way of resting is she had her book and her coffee or her tea, uh, and there were screaming kids trying to get at her, but she was lo- she had locked herself in the dog kennel. And so, uh, and, and then the uh, meme said, why didn't I think of this sooner? Because there's a dog and the two kids that are trying to get at her, and she's just relaxing in the dog kennel. I know of moms that have said that they lock themselves in the bathroom because uh, that's their way of getting away from from the kids for a little while. Well, I really miss, I haven't been able to go, but this is one of the things I liked so much about hunting every year, especially being up you know, alone in your stand at dawn when it's absolutely silent. And there's nothing else, and it's just you out there appreciating creation. Yeah. Well, I got a little freaked out yesterday uh, appreciating creation. I was listening to the end of the Voyages of Dr. Doolittle. So he's a doctor that can talk to the animals. And this is about 6.15 in the morning. The sun hadn't come up yet, and I saw a coyote on the bike trail. Now, that was the first coyote I've seen on the trail, and I just yelled at him. He ran. Well, he didn't really run. He kind of jogged a few dozen feet away and then just turned and looked at me, but I wasn't stopping. Uh, you know, so, but, but that, too. Uh, I listen, I'm always listening to podcasts, now audiobooks while I'm biking, but the better thing is just to sit and relax, uh, not to have a screen. And so there... Uh, to take a Sabbath rest like you're talking about, you know, pick a day and put all of your screens away. Your computer, your TV, your phone, don't listen to it, don't look at it, don't scroll on it. And the same thing with your spouse, your kids. Uh, Man, that is an effective punishment for kids though now. Yeah, well, and so my wife and I were just talking about this the other day, that kids don't know how to be bored today. No. They have no concept, uh, and 
they have to always be looking at at something, doing something. And it's good for them to do something that's away from the screen. But this is why uh, you know this is why we're not sending people to the moon. This is why we're not going deep sea exploring all these kinds of things because we don't know how to do these things. We've lost a lot of skills because we are only with the screen and we don't we're not thinking of creative ways of doing things and figuring things out on our own. Boredom allows our creativity to come out because we don't want to be bored. And that's that's good, but we shouldn't be uh, filling up our boredom with just mindless entertainment. We should be, uh, you know, I, I went into someone's house the other day, a two-year-old was there. Um, she had out her dragons and and her castle, which is what I like, and then right next to it with a kitchen set and so forth. That's a kid's mind of creative, of how you can have your castle with the dragons and the soldiers right there with your dolls and your tea. You know, we were talking about TV before. Like, I remember growing up and spending a lot of time outside, Um, but also part of that is because you can only watch the same 12 movies your parents owned on VHS so many times. And like something else, you know, you try to explain to your kids, it's like, yeah, we, we, you know, I, for years and years, the only version of a new hope that I had was what my mom had taped off the ABC family movie night. So watching star Wars and having to fast forward through the commercials and they look at you like, what? Yeah. And yeah, and you know, you you could only watch that mindless stuff because you didn't have hours and hours. Or trying to explain to kids, like, yeah, the uh, at like ten o'clock after the news was done, the TV went to either a test pattern after they played the national anthem with a flag flying, and then nothing was on again until six a.m. the next morning. And what? Yeah. Uh, but then Jesus leaves, and the reason he leaves is to go preaching. Uh, going out and uh, he says, let's go somewhere else in the neighboring villages so I can preach there too. So he's looking for opportunities to preach. And they're just, for our listeners to understand uh, the role that your board for all missions has this spring is they are looking for new places to start churches and then to have enhancements. So those are things to work for three years on funding a new outreach ministry in an existing congregation. So for those of you who live in the southeast Wisconsin district, which is where we are, and that goes down to uh, Radcliffe, Kentucky, where I was. That's the southernmost end of our district all the way to Lexington, and then up past a little bit north of Milwaukee, like Grafton area and so forth in Wisconsin, and that's the southeast Wisconsin district. And uh, in my role as District Mission Board Chairman, we're going to be bringing in a, a restart. So this is a congregation that's you know pretty much dead. They've got like 12 to 15 worshipers on a Sunday. They are vacant, but we want to be in the big cities. So we just started last year uh, a new mission in Boston, and so we want to stay in uh, inner city Chicago because we don't have many. So it'd be a restart of of an existing congregation, and then we want to have a new start in Cedar Lake, Indiana, because people are fleeing Illinois for various reasons and moving next door to Indiana. And so we want to have a brand new uh, mission there, and then also enhancements 
of a campus pastor of two of our Wells schools in Milwaukee. And uh, Lord willing, if we have those two new congregations and two enhancements, our goal is to have uh, to start 10 new starts and seven enhancements every year. Uh, there's probably going to be about, we have 12, oh, we have 14 board for missions districts, districts. If each of us bring one to two, you can do the math on that's going to be at least uh, 12 to 20 new start restarts alone. And Lord willing, we'll have 10 of those that we will be finding new places to preach the gospel. Anything you want to have, say anything on, on that part of preaching elsewhere? No, other than I helped do some of the groundwork for that last year, uh, doing a mission trip down to, to Austin and doing some of the exploratory work, um, just seeing about the feasibility of starting a church um, in a different area. Because as you well know, it's not as easy as just throwing a dart at a map and saying we should start a church there. We, we want to see, is, is it possible? Is it going to thrive? if we plant a church here and just seeing the opportunity for growth. Um, I know some people can sometimes get discouraged as we look at the statistics in the Synod and seeing the number of our churches that are closing, but a lot of that's due to the way the population is moving and shifting within the United States and us addressing the reality that we were initially a very rural German Synod with a lot of, doing a lot of church work uh, with the family farms in Wisconsin, and that that has gone away. And so a lot of those smaller churches don't have the membership there. But what we are doing is saying, hey, but there are still people, more people who need to hear the gospel. So like Jesus, going where the people are. Yeah, and uh, praise God that there are those pastors, those faith ones that are taking on those one, two, three, or four congregations. They're just hanging on together can barely afford a pastor, and he may be the pastor that is burying those saints and then closing the churches, and that's okay. They, they didn't fail. They served God's people faithfully for their decades, and then, yeah, like you said, God's people move, and so God places church new churches elsewhere. And then we thank God for those men that have the energy to go and go to do the mission work of new people. And those sometimes are very two different gifted people. That saint that can be there, that, that saint pastor that can be there with those dying saints and comforting them. Uh, and then those that are uh, going out and reaching out to brand new people and then bringing them into God's kingdom. And I like to emphasize that, you know, those churches didn't fail. It very much seems like the way God works with the gospel is the gospel will be planted and through his grace, it may grow and flourish in a place for a time, and then it it goes and it flourishes somewhere else. You think about, I don't know if none, but few of the churches that Paul started still exist today. Uh, you think about, you know, the strong core of Lutheran churches that was in Germany right after the Reformation. Almost all of those are gone. Our sister synod in Germany is very small now, but that seems to be how it goes with God and his church, that it flourishes for a time and a place, and then the gospel flourishes somewhere else in a time for a place. And with that, I remember talking to one of our synod officials, and he said that the average church's length in existence, not the wells, 
I thought he said somewhere between like 20 and 40 years. I thought I had heard 80. Well, see, in those congregations, it's 20 20 to 40. We in the wells. Okay. Okay, so we in the wells, we're going to hold on a little longer. So there is like 80, 70 to 80 years, which is very interesting because God says about the length of a person's life is 70 to 80 years. So we shouldn't expect that the life of a congregation is going to be more than that. And God be praised. Uh, some of the congregations nearby, First Eve and downtown, they're celebrating their 175th year. The congregation I grew up in at David Starr in Kirkine near Jackson, Wisconsin, uh, that, that, that church is older than our Wisconsin Synod. And so, but those are anomalies. Those are very rare in Christianity in America. Uh, and so if a congregation, they, they struggle and they get started and then they, they go for a while and then they don't work, well, that's okay. God served his people in that time, in that place, with the means of grace, gospel and word and sacrament for those saints for whatever time he wanted them to do that. And then he is the one that's in control. If he wants to close his church, then let's let him close the church and then move move the resources elsewhere. On the other side, it does it is kind of a condemnation on the whole the whole human race. I was just thinking about you see this pattern in, you know, judges, kings, even with Moses, is the people stay faithful for a while mm-hmm. and then quickly fall away. And then something comes back and the people come back and there's a flourishing of faith and then sin gains an upper hand again. And that's just that's the cycle of sin in this world that we seem incapable of staying faithful to God for any prolonged period of time. And it's only by God's grace that he comes to us again and again and preserves his gospel in this world. Yeah, I think that's this congregation even. While we were only Epiphany, we had that time frame where we were we were struggling, barely holding on, especially before I got here with the previous pastor getting kicked out of the church and church body. Uh, this this church almost closed. And then 20 years later, oh, probably 15 years later, we went through a very difficult time money-wise. Uh, and now we're still going through a difficult time money-wise. And yet God is blessing us that this Sunday, we have our youth Sunday, we'll be blessed with uh, a baptism of a third grader in our school, a Chinese freshman uh, at Shoreland Lutheran High School. He will be baptized, and then he will also be confirmed along with six adults. And then I have two to three uh, adults that are starting classes, adult confirmation classes already on Monday. And so there are those congregations that struggle, and then, Lord willing, they are uh, being brought to faith, and other people are being brought to faith as those churches grow. Let's get into the second reading. So this is from 1 Peter chapter 5, and the theme of this one is that our enemy, the devil, may stalk us like a hungry lion. He's looking for prey, but the God of all grace is with us, and he promises us deliverance. Peter writes, and and notice, and remember, Peter is writing to Christians who are being persecuted. I think that helps uh, when you know the background of the audience to whom Peter is addressing his letter. He says, Therefore, humble yourselves under God's powerful hand so that he may lift you up at the appointed time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
Have sound judgment. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him by being firm in the faith. You know that the same kinds of sufferings are being laid on your brotherhood all over the world. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So Peter begins by saying, Therefore, humble yourselves under God's powerful hand. And there, you know, I just think of uh, it's better for us to humble ourselves before God, before he pushes us down. Uh, in this, I would equate with you know, students in our grade school is it's better for them to humble themselves and admit that they've done something wrong than for me or a teacher or a principal to find out and you don't have to go searching for what they did wrong. And then it's going to be, then that powerful hand is going to come down on them harder. And that's something uh, that I remind students of is, you know, when I have to confront them with, say, bullying, all right, you be honest with me. If, if, you're, if you're honest with me, you're still going to get disciplined. But you're going to get disciplined a lot harder if I have to go and spend my time going and talking to the bus driver, to other students, and so forth. Uh, then it's going to be heavier. And, and I, I think that's uh, part of what Peter is referring to here. Uh, let's humble ourselves under God's mighty hand so that he can lift us up rather than bringing that hand down in judgment and discipline. Well, the thing I like, too, is Peter's setting up, you know, the struggle that we're in. It's, it's us against, you know, our enemy, the devil. But then what he says is you think about how, you know, if you're, if you're getting ready, I think of my son— who's wrestling right now. And I remember back when I was wrestling, how you would get yourself ready um, to go in and be in competition with this person. And yet Peter sets it up as in, you know, how do you prepare yourself? You prepare yourself by humbling yourself and relying on God. That it's not about you fighting the devil. It's about you realizing that God is fighting, has defeated the devil on your behalf. That it's not this you versus the world or you versus Satan. It's no, it's you trusting in God, which is very, it's opposite how we prepare ourselves to deal with any other problem in our life. But God is putting the emphasis, no, you put your trust in me and not in yourself. Yeah, and he says, trust in me, I will lift you up. But notice when he says he'll lift you up, at the appointed time. Now, my wife, you know, she appreciates just how patient of a person I am. I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, she's laughing right now uh, if she listened, heard me say that because she knows I'm like the least patient person. But what Peter is teaching us here is be patient. If it's not happening right now, Lord willing, it will happen, but it'll happen when God wants his lifting up to happen at the appointed time. And then he, he encourages people. Cast all your anxiety on him. And I find it interesting that the last couple of weeks, you and I have had more of our members come just to talk for some counseling and things like that. They understand that they want to cast their anxieties on God, but sometimes they need some pastoral help with that. Well, and it can be difficult, you know, 
especially with the the thinking about in God's appointed time, where sometimes it feel like we can have all sorts of problems that start piling up on us, and we go, "Okay, God, you said you would take care of this for me, but it's in His time, not in our time." That when he is laying these things before us to get us to have us trust in him more and more that we can say, okay, I'm ready to trust you. Well, maybe not. Maybe he, he's still teaching us lovingly disciplining us to get us to rely on him and not to rely on ourselves. Yeah. And then he says, be alert. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Be alert. Uh, I, I tease some of my members because they, they think I'm crazy biking so much, but especially, you know, I bike in the dark. You know, I've got lights on the front of my, my bike. I've got flashers on the back. I, and I'm biking in the dark. I've got a yellow reflective vest. And it's, I tell it's so people can see you when you're violating all the traffic laws that <laughs> other vehicles have to follow, yeah. right? Uh, but the key is in, in the darkness like that, you're hyper alert. Because you don't know what's coming out of, of the darkness, especially like if you're in the trail and so forth and there's a coyote, a wild dog or something. You're, you're hyper alert. And that's what, that's what Peter's talking about here. Be hyper alert, not just going through the motions, lackadaisical like we often are. Because the, because the, the lion of the devil, he can pounce on you at any moment. Well, it reminds me too of like when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're thirsty and you, you want to go to the, you need to go get the kitchen to get a drink, but you also, you don't want to turn any of the lights on. But yeah, you're alert walking through your house. Even though you think you know where everything is, you, you go carefully. You're aware of your your surroundings. I think about that sometimes too when I'm, I have worked a couple, when I worked a job as a uh, security officer and I also worked in a hotel and sometimes had to help out with security. You are alert because you know there's potential danger all around you. And so you're aware you're looking out for those things. But I think Peter here is too, is telling you with the idea of that have sound judgment, be alert, know yourself, know those areas of sin that you're weak in, that you know that you easily fall into and know to avoid those situations. If you struggle with lustful thoughts, don't have your phone in a room where no one else is, where you can be tempted to use that. If you're someone who struggles with maybe having one drink too many, don't put yourself in those situations. Know yourself. Know how Satan tempts you. And to be ready because he's looking for those opportunities to attack you. And there with that... Uh, the devil attacking you, I think of one of the lessons I teach the eighth graders in catechism class is when we study Cain and Abel, before Cain kills his brother, God warns him saying, if you do not do good, sin is crouching at the door. And there I, I show a video of a young antelope that is caught by its foot in a mud hole by a crocodile. And he's struggling and struggling to get free. He finally gets free and the kids are cheering for it. But then they notice in the video that there's a cheetah that has come up to the, the mud hole but it's in the, in the bushes and the antelope doesn't see him. It's, it's escaped the crocodile, one predator, and then all of a sudden uh, the sin crouching at your door, the roaring lion of this cheetah, 
it snatches them and the next thing you see in the video is its neck is broken and the cheetah's carrying it away. And that's what the devil can do to us when we allow sin to just be in our lives. We're not alert for the devil. And this is, you've probably heard me say this before, I, I warn all of my adult confirmands somewhere along the line in our classes, I warn them that the devil is going to come at you. Uh, he's going to come at you hard because now you are deepening your faith in Christ. You are worshiping him. You are getting involved in the support of the ministry of Christ church and his, the spread of his kingdom. And you are taking people away from from Satan and he's losing territory. He's He's terrified and he's going to lash out like we talked about last time. He is all emotion. He's going to come at you hard. And then uh, most of the people have said to me, oh, now I understand why this is going on in my life. Thanks, Pastor. Because they, they, they didn't know enough to be alert. I think of some people, too, who have faced hardship, suffering, setback in their life and who have been faithful Christians and feel that God has turned against them or he was never really there and they fall away from the church for a while and then Satan comes at them from a different thing. I was just thinking of this with your analogy with the cheetah, using one of the false churches that's out there that seems to be presenting a message that seems good and moral and upright and sucks them in. I think of you know, the Mormon church as people go to there for an answer, or Jehovah's Witnesses, or Islam, as alternatives to Christianity, because Christianity, they feel, failed them. Well, now they're going to find something else to fill fill that within them, and Satan has those other things that look, as we're told in Scripture, he masquerades as an angel of light. It looks good, but it's really evil. And then he says, again, he's writing to Christians who are suffering persecution, and he says, you know that the same kinds of sufferings are being laid on your brotherhood all over the world. I don't think this is a misery loves company because I'll have people say to me uh, and they'll talk about all the ailments and things that they have. Maybe this is like a shut in. And then they'll say, oh, but I know other people have it worse. That's kind of that misery loves company. This is more like, all right, your suffering. Good. You know, as a pastor, I don't think I'd say it that way. But to understand, God calls us to suffer, and what you're suffering is nothing new and nothing different than what other Christians today around the world and in the past have suffered. Well, I think that's where we see such a strong example from the apostles themselves in Acts that rejoiced. You had um, Peter and John who were overjoyed when they were thrown in prison because they were getting persecuted for the sake of Christ. Um Paul, I believe, talks about that, like rejoice in your sufferings. You are being persecuted because you are one of God's elect. Jesus says they'll, they'll hate you because of me. That's what being a Christian is. And Peter is saying here that, yeah, this is who we are. We are the church. We are, to, we are going to be persecuted. Satan, the world, our sinful natures are all opposed against us. Um, but our present sufferings are nothing in comparison with the eternal joy that is our reward through Christ. And then notice what Peter says. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory will himself restore you and so forth. And we'll talk about that. But notice that phrase, 
a little while. Now, that suffering may seem like a long time for us and a little while to God, but the key is it's a little while and then it ends. Whatever we are suffering, even if we are called to suffer it uh, our entire lives, those 70 to 80 years, God says it will end for us as a Christian. I'm sure you've gone through it. Those nights when, you know, something has happened and you're grieving, those nights seem to take forever. When you're in that pain, when you're in that suffering, an hour seems like a day. Um, And so, yeah, suffering can be difficult. It can stretch. It feels like it can take forever. But Peter's saying it's just a little while. It's a little while in comparison to what is coming. And he says, the God of all grace will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. So there, just think of if if you're working out, and I, I hope you are, maybe even working out while you're listening to this, is, you know, if you're running, you're lifting weights, you're, you're biking, whatever, uh, you're going to be feeling weak. You're going to feel tired. But then after a while, you're going to feel better and you're going to feel strong. That's the idea that Peter is getting at here is, yeah, the suffering sucks, okay? It does. And yet when you go through that suffering, you're going to come out stronger on the other end of it. That was one of my football coaches always talked to us about the pain, the pain of discipline and the pain of regret. Like the pain of discipline, yeah, doing the training is hard. It's not fun all the time. But, you know, the reward is worth it. The regret is, you know, where you do it for a little bit and then you give it up. And you never get to that point where you ever get the reward from it. I'm doing this. I finally got back on the horse after not working out like I should have and started running again. And, yeah, the first couple days are terrible with the shin splints and the feeling like every joint in your body is aching. But I know if I stay at it in a couple weeks, I'll feel a lot better. And then he finishes, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. There's the key of why we go through the suffering. There's the key of why we are resisting, why we are alert, why we are humbling ourselves. It's all by God's grace and to his glory. Anything else you want to bring up with this text? No. All right. Then we're going to wrap it up here. This is... Pastor Michael Zarling with Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. You are thirsty, my friends, so drink deeply from the water of life.